This is the Nordic Animism channel. I'm Rune Janne Rasmussen, a historian of religion. And this is a new genre that I'm trying out here for my little channel. It's a review, a recommendation of a book. And I think I mostly like doing that kind of stuff when it's about something that I really like. And boy, is this book worth your time. <laughs> I don't think I remember getting through a book and then immediately starting it all over again. This is the uh, First Nations Australian thinker, Tyson Junkerporter, in the uh, recent publication Sand Talk, awesome title, with the subtitle How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World. Kind of cheesy subtitle. Um, Junker Porter, Porter himself is this sort of special, very human character. He seems like simultaneously like a bit of an Australian ship kicker, uh, yet also a post-structuralist, feminist, indigenous knowledge kind of professor type, uh, which I kind of sympathize with being myself a little bit of a shit kicker. I grew up in a, in a pig farm, um, but I have, have my PhD from uh, University of Uppsala. Um, there's, a, there's kind of a cynical sort of down-to-earth humor in his writing, uh, which combined with this biting criticism of the, uh, of the structure of, and I'm not sure if the word would be Western civilization, <clears throat> perhaps, urbanized civilization uh, and when uh, Tyson hands out a good pommeling to civilization he does it with you know good humor and virtuosity and precision you know his uh, his project is uh, the following like he, he starts with a bit of a laconic sort of criticism of all that you know indigenous knowledge scholarship uh, where people are mostly just affirming each other and waving around sage and patting each other's back without really producing anything that will actually change the world. He then introduce, introduces his own project, which is applying uh, Aboriginal Australian pattern thinking in his criticism of civilization. Right? So he uses uh, Aboriginal understanding of the deep patterns of creation to criticize the living shit out of consumer capitalism and the contemporary empire. Now, this might sound like it would just be another, you know, barrage of sour, angry leftist stuff, but it totally is not. You, know, you really get the feeling, I, I got the feeling, that, you know, you get a different eye on this world and how it works. And th there are places in this book where I, I like, laughed out loud in astonishment or started crying, <laughs> something like that. Much of this book I actually listened to on MP3. So it's a bit like in the supermarket, people would just see me all of a sudden go, dude. <laughs> um, I don't know a lot about Aboriginal Australians. I remember uh, during my education having them presented as people with very high level of philosophy. This anthropologist who's with them will at some point be gently informed that, okay, mate, you know, you have now reached the limit of your cognitive capacity, so you can now run off back to your institution and write all your blah, blah, blah. Uh, <laughs> and uh, with Junker Porter, you get the feeling that you have, like, one of those kind of guys talking to you in a language that you can actually understand. Uh, and there's also limits to what you can say, because all information is not just free to throw it around in any cheap-ass media, such as writing, uh, internet, um, in this animist uh, culture. Some is supposed to be communicated in very specific situations, perhaps initiations, by very specific people with a specific kind of authority, perhaps resting on elderhood or embeddedness in Aboriginal law and specific totemic systems. But 
Juncker Porter gives us a little peek into this. And I think it's quite rare that I, to that level, have felt that brought into the perspective of, an, uh, of another culture, and that convincingly. You know? When I was a young man, I remember encountering Chief Seattle's speech, uh, and later being disillusioned that I found out that that never had any interface at all with any indigenous culture. It's just some cheesy stereotype image of indigeneity that some hippie dude has like pulled out of his ass because he needed some lofty sounding shit to you know bolster some environmentalist message that he was making. Um, yeah, that, I mean that was the accessibility that we used to have to, or that I used to have to, uh, like real indigenous thinking or not real indigenous thinking. And I think today people should realize what amazing wealth it is, you know, for our world, for everybody, that guys like Junker Porter and, you know, you could also uh, mention the um, uh, Yanomamo shaman, David Kopenauer, probably a lot of other, other indigenous scholars or thinkers, that they have such a voice that it's so available to us. We can just go down and pick it up and then we can learn from and engage this indigenous thinking today. Um, Junker Porter's work springs from uh, part, part of probably from following song lines throughout uh, Australia. And these are lines in the landscape that play some particular role in creative deities shaping the world or something like that. And his starting point is uh, an Aboriginal form of dialectic or dialogue called yarning. Uh, and I think the etymological uh, connection to spinning a weaving sort of activity is probably not completely insignificant. Uh, in fact, the word text is also derived from textus in Latin, meaning, meaning a, a woven textile of sorts. So, uh, uh, anyway, uh, Junker Porter, he yarns uh, in this book. He emulates this Aboriginal uh, interpersonal form of pedagogy or knowledge development where you are interchanging between anecdotes and reflections and humor in a way that makes it really functional, really accessible. You don't have to be a scholar to read this. Um, he also roots his whole reflections in uh, indigenous knowledge by letting his reflections start from the shaping of traditional objects. So he'll say, when writing this chapter, I carved a traditional shield, uh, which has this or that function and has this or that relation to traditional culture, and it's decorate, docu uh, decorated in this or that way with uh, patterns of creation and so on. He's also trying to sort of reach out of the book, the text, uh, it is as if the text isn't really enough for him. He wants to reach out and, and sit beside you and yawn with you, right? Um, so, and, and, and try to bring about this dynamic, growing, organic, changing knowledge of how to, uh, how to relate with the world. So, for instance, there are these sand symbols that he talks about as patterns of creations that are these basic poly uh, polyvalent symbols that can serve as reservoirs of knowledge. Or he uses the hands as mnemonic storage for knowledge, something that uh, was actually also the case in Nordic culture. Um, and uh, what Junker uh, Porter uh, gives us here is first and foremost, I think also a very dynamic image of traditional knowledge. It's a living, breathing, changing indigeneity that just overflows with intelligence and passions and this feisty pointing critique of the civilization that has attacked his people, right? Uh, and though there are aspects perhaps of idealization here and there, uh, I think he generally doesn't describe this sort of flowery, static ideal of a pre-colonial uh, indigeneity. It's much more organic. 
His writing is also blissfully relieved of the sort of unctuous, sort of love-bumming, very emotionally sentimental tone that you sometimes kind of sense around indigenous scholarship. Uh, and uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe it really works for some people, but I'm personally, I'm, I feel I'm, I'm sort of culturally coded against uh, a certain level of hippiedom when it becomes like, let's hold hand and bond with the land. And, you know, yeah, and then I sometimes I get a little bit... Uh, but um, but he, he, he remain, maintains a strong uh, criticism of the disruptive destruction of uh, humanity's relation uh, with, with the land basically. Um, and this is what makes this so powerfully and, and wonderfully potent. He allows Australian First Nation culture to stand today uh, being hurt and, and, and having wounds, but also with all its, its potency and it, the depths of its philosophy, and, but being very much alive today, represented by hardcore feminist scholars that would, could beat the shit out of him, he says, you know, if they wanted, or l- annoying lawyers that talk a little bit too much, you know, or, uh, and are a little bit crazy, and uh, elders who use smartphones to decipher the pattern, uh, patterns of creation, you know, and, and himself cringing at the memory of himself performing his culture in the sort of exotifying ways with didgeridoos and stuff like stereotype images, you know. And I think that for people relating to Nordic heritage, I think there's several ideas in Junker Porter's writing that I think could be very relevant. Uh, one thing is that the concept of law, uh, which is uh, very central, I think, also to traditional Nordic culture. Uh, many who relate to Nordic heritage uh, I sense they tend towards this sort of anarchic, anti-hierarchy way of understanding human community. And this is very characteristic of Tyson's uh, thinking. Uh, he describes a culture where law is, is, I'm almost tempted to use the word absolute, probably the wrong word. You know. Tyson uh, calls it inalienable, inalienable, right? And, and under this inalienable law, uh, there's very little, perhaps almost no, hierarchy between these First Nations Australians. They live governed by law and inscribed in complex relational patterns that tie people to the land and into totemic kinships with cohabitants in the land, uh, of the land and with each other, right? And, and this, of course, is not without problems. It's not, it's not paradise. And, and I, mean, I, I actually know this from my, my own life. My, my partner was born and lived her first years in a village in Central Africa. Uh, who, where you find a life form and worldview is still traditional. <clears throat> People still hunt with spears and pray to ancestors in sacred caves and stuff like that. <clears throat> and I can attest that living with these people is not a hippie paradise. It's not Scion. You know, one uh, concrete example is uh, economy. When people have a relational sharing economy, then that does not align with a capitalist economy. And in a setting such as this, then you meet your own sort of inherent capitalism, uh, no matter how a- anti-capitalist you thought you were, because what happens is uh, that when a person with an astronomical level or perceived astronomical level of material wealth lands in a, in a, in a, in a sharing economy, well, then this wealth or the perceived wealth is required to diffuse through the relational sharing system, of course, disseminate through the sharing system. Now, in existential terms, this means that, that uh, what you'll experience is people asking you for things and asking you for money constantly. Like, I like your shoes. Can I have them? <laughs> uh, and and the, <laughs> it sounds funny, but it's difficult. Uh, difficult when you're in-laws, right? Which is <laughs> your in-laws. And it reflects 
I think it reflects how messed up our capitalist economy is. You know? I think at some point I might do a video about uh, animist perspectives on, on economy. But yeah, you know, that was a bit of a <laughs> sidetrack. But in this book here, Tyson is, is trying, I think, to give a voice to this kind of relational community, uh, from spoken from this kind of relational community, which, by the way, is also a community that has very little uh, gender disparity. Another feature that I think that, for instance, uh, Nordic heathens might really like. Um, since reading this book, uh, I really felt that some of its concepts uh, start sitting with me, and particularly the notion of pattern of creation, uh, which uh, I've already spoken about. <laughs> and uh, I think Tyson makes the point that these complex solutions that are needed to solve complex problems, they emerge from complex, organic, dynamic, relational networks that humans enter into. And I think this is an awesome point. And I think it is part of the, the rupture that modernity implements on us um, that it alienates us also from other humans. Like my partner's family again, they live all their life in hearing distance from the extended family, a little clan. You know? this, this is a hyper-social existence. We are much more isolated, really. It is an existence where there's no loneliness in, in silent nature, for instance, that we modern people imagine and romanticize, romanticize and we are nostalgic about the loneliness in nature. There's chattering of persons everywhere. Everywhere is community. And animist people, they're in touch with the fact that, that we exist in our relating, in our relation. So they don't try to rupture relation. They don't try to isolate themselves like ever, actually. Uh, well, maybe in specific forms of initiation and so on. And, and I think this is so characteristic of the modern aestheticized distancing from nature that we appreciate it uh, in this spectator kind of way uh, but uh, being in it is really a way of worshipping our own inherent solitude almost our distance from nature that uh, is implemented by modernity right another example is the American anthropologist Kenneth Good who married an Amazonian uh, a Yanomama woman called Yarima and, and she moved with him to United States but she got a depression had to move back now, why did uh, Yarima get depressed was it because she missed the contemplative loneliness of the rainforest uh, and she couldn't stand all the noise and chatter and intensity of urban life no it was exactly the opposite she was depressed because she was lonely in America. She came from having grown up in a Yanomamo Shabono, a kind of a tribe house where your whole family group lives inside one room and they're inside, you know, so when you open your eyes in the morning, you, you, you see them. Or try to spend a weekend with your in-laws and see, imagine how that, fe <laughs> that feels. This is, and, and that feeling that we have, you know, oh my God, you know, I have to get have to get out away now from uh, from my, my family or something. That is our modern rupture of relational uh, existence. That we are ruptured also from each other, not only from uh, from all the other than humans, but also from humans. And I think here the internet that I in another video called the Trollheim um, is uh, this rupture is being enlarged almost to this cosmic condition because who we see and interact with and what we see is decided by these algorithms that show us stuff show us stuff that they think we like right based on this attention extraction capitalism 
And this creates these mirror cabinets for all of us. So our relations on a wide social basis have been ruptured. We all radicalize and polarize instead of facing the difficult struggle of relating and hence creating the complex social structures that might have the capacity to cope with a complex problem that the world is facing at the moment, right? So from the outset, the internet ought to have been the perfect tool to do exactly this. But big tech, attention extraction capitalism, is turning it into a weapon against it, against our relation, uh, relatedness with each other and with the world. It's insane. You know, the internet, the most relational thing that ever existed, you could, not, nah, maybe not, but very relational thing, is actually rupturing our relation. It's absolutely insane. On the right wing, you see rampant growth and ag aggressive chauvinisms. And on the left, you have this cancel culture, right? You know, if, if, if people are afraid of Muslim, Muslims, for instance, then we just block them. I'm, I'm totally guilty of this myself. I always do this on my channel. If, if I, for instance, meet uh, racism and so on, just block. Um, it, and and, that, and this, is, this is a non-relating. Instead of perhaps forming some relation that would enable us to engage that fear, for instance, the fear of Muslims. And, these, and, and, and now, of course, these fears are just running rampant in their own mirror cabinets, right? Instead of being modified by entering into, uh, into relation with other people. So in, our sen in a sense, these internet spaces, they, they, they are destroying our possibility to even begin forming those complex networks of relations that might enable us to address the Ragnarok that we are facing, right, of biosphere apocalypse, overpopulation, overconsumption, radicalization, climate change, polarization, mass extinction, social disparity on grotesque scales, uh, and capitalism, which is involving into some sort of Wall Street cartel uh, feudalism to which we're all kind of slaves, uh, you know, through our loans and so on. So here's what I would like to see, you know, as a kind of ending point uh, on uh, Tyson Junkenporter's book here. And that is, I would like to see some big tech experts, social media experts, go down, find this guy. I have contact with him. You can also just write him. <laughs> and sit around the fire together with Tyson Junkenporter and perhaps a couple of these elders that he's communicating with and talking about were well, like these Dalai Lama level dudes walking around in jeans and t-shirts somewhere in the bush in, in uh, Australia, right? Sit down with these guys and figure out what kind of relation is necessary to produce uh, a world that ha has a capacity uh, to survive, right? What kind of relation? This is what I would like to see. Do this. Form the internet based on Aboriginal pattern, uh, cre uh, pattern of creation thinking. Now that that would be an actual uh, an actual play into solving some of the incredible problem that, uh, that the world uh, has. Yeah, I think you should go down and uh, create Facebook based on <laughs> uh, Aboriginal pattern thinking. Anyway, thank you very much for listening, and uh, thanks to Tyson Junkerporter for giving the world this amazing book. And, uh, well, do yourself a favor reading it.